Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Randa Melcher, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Boaventura Santos to tell us all about his book titled From the Pandemic to Utopia, The Future Begins Now. The book's just been published in 2023, and it's a fascinating book. It has a lot of arguments about what's wrong with our world, um, why those problems were caused far before the pandemic, but how really the COVID-19 pandemic has brought them into focus. And there's all sorts of things that we must learn from them. So Boaventura, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to tell us all about your book. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. Before we go into the book itself, would you mind introducing yourself a bit to the audience and explaining why you decided to write this? My name is Boaventura Santos. I'm a professor emeritus at the University of Coimbra in Portugal and a distinguished legal scholar at the University of Wisconsin Medicine. Um, and uh, the reason why I decided to write this book is that I really... Uh, was experienced something new, which was a pandemic, which I had never lived in my life. And uh, I got the sense that um, this pandemic would uh, be a a game changer in many respects in our societies, because it was coming after, you know, other crises like the financial crisis of 2008. But it looked like that was something different because it was globally felt and touched the the lives of people, you know, around the world, posing questions of health almost everywhere, as the the Spanish influenza done before. Um, That was the main reason. The second was that uh, I'm very much concerned with uh, environmental, ecological issues, and I had a sense that this pandemic against or contrary to the previous ones had something to do with uh, the ecological situation in which we are uh, now at the beginning of the 21st century. Thank you for introducing us uh, to those motivations. I'd love to pick up on that last point, the idea of the beginning of the 21st century, because I think one of the most important Uh, arguments you're making in the book is that the pandemic is revealing things to us, um, but is not necessarily creating new problems inherently. It's not like suddenly everything started in 2020. There's stuff going on um, before. You've mentioned things like the financial crisis, um, other epidemics. Um, But thinking about sort of centuries and how we think about time, you talk about in the book that really we might want to think about the 21st century as beginning with the COVID pandemic, that things like the 2008 financial crisis or the 9-11 attacks or January 1st might be more seen as part of the previous century and that kind of something new is happening in terms of time more recently. Can you Mm -hmm. take us through your thinking on this? Yes, I I think that the the virus, I didn't see the virus as an enemy. I saw the virus as a messenger, Uh, even a pedagogue. I think that I saw the virus uh, not only by the the, the speed with which it really, uh, you know, got hold of of all the world. You know, when we saw in previous pandemics, it took so much time 
to to have it um, globalized, so to say. In this case, it was a question of months. Um, I think that this virus was trying to tell us something. Uh, and what it was trying to tell us was that the way we deal with nature uh, is something deeply wrong and uh, nature is reacting. Uh, I saw the virus as a kind of a game changer in this sense. is is really a, a very first, very serious a signal given by nature that in fact we are destabilizing the habitats of the wild animals and and this destabilization which is connected with our ways of capitalist development are really creating uh, turbulence in the ways in which the virus circulates the virus circulate among wild animals and they are very very important but when they uh, uh, travel from uh, these animals to us uh, then we are not uh, we are not immune we don't have defenses against them why do i say that is because uh, you know the human life is 0.01% of the total life of the planet but we are a tiny part of the life in the planet and in spite of the fact we have been very arrogant because we have been trying to destroy the planet and the planet is telling us through the virus that no the, the planet probably is not going to be destroyed we may as a species be destroyed but not the planet the planet can go on with other species but probably the human species is really um taking uh changes uh, chances that it may not survive if we continue this type of uh, very intensive exploitation of natural resources destroying the metabolisms the, the natural metabolisms of nature that restore the natural cycles of of rivers of the mountains of the of the land and by doing this by intense uh, mining intense uh, agriculture etc we are really destroying nature and this is destabilizing nature in such a way that nature, you know, is a little bit fed up or, or is offended with us. So I saw that this was different because it was it was looked at as a kind of a natural disaster, and I didn't see it as a natural disaster. I saw it as a social disaster. It is the end result of our types of of development in our societies that are leading to this. And if I'm right then we are entering a period of recurrent pandemics uh, that we go from uh, acute periods of pandemic and chronic periods. For instance, we are now in a chronic period of this pandemic because people are still getting COVID, but because of vaccines and because of other things, but people are surviving. They are not the news anymore, right? This is typical of a chronic uh, moment of the pandemic, but we are not free. Uh, of a, a new acute uh, type of uh, version of this virus, of coronavirus or uh, any other virus. So I think this is different uh, when I compare with the, the financial crisis um, in 2008, because it's touching the very uh, infrastructure of life. That is to say, our very existing existence on Earth 
can be in danger, basically. And that's why I, I became so much interested, particularly understanding that when this crisis came, this virus came, in fact, it was a pandemic on top of other pandemics that we didn't identify as such. We didn't identify, for instance, hunger. Uh, we didn't identify as a pandemic uh, the crisis of the of the health systems everywhere in the world through the privatization of health. That now is, is a kind of a business and not the public good anymore. So th there were many things that were occurring that all of a sudden become more visible. Because as I documented in the book, the people that were suffering previous pandemics, like hunger, uh, deficient housing, no access to water, uh, domestic violence, and all these other things were most, uh, you know, prone to contract the virus. And the mortality rates, in fact, uh, told us that these people were much more vulnerable. Therefore, the pandemic was uh, intensifying all the known inequalities in the world in such a way that I... I felt something must be done. Uh, uh, and uh, that's why I was intrigued by that. And was the reason why I gave so much importance, because not many people were connecting the ecological crisis with the virus. And I felt that the connection was there. And um, the virus was not, uh, not an enemy, was uh, a messenger of some very disturbing message coming from nature. Thank you for explaining that and making that linkage explicit. Something else I'd like to raise from the book is this idea of barbarism. Um, we think about capitalism, the, the argument is often made that it's progress, it's improvement, you know, that's what new technology inevitably is. And of course, that's a particular argument, but one that's been going on for quite a while now, especially in uh, countries of the global north. And it's often portrayed in opposition to sort of older historical barbarism or um, other cultures that are apparently more barbaric. And of course, we've deconstructed a lot of these ideas. Um, but this basic understanding that what we have now must be civilization is often still implicit. And yet, as you've just discussed in that answer and you talk about in the book, um, the current system definitely has a lot of problems with it. So to what extent do you think we might conceive of the current system as one of barbarism, despite claims about civilization? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Yeah, well, I I, I think that, in fact, the barbarism uh, has always been a concept that we have used for something that precedes our time or succeeds our time and is much worse than our current time. Uh, we, uh, particularly in the global north, we have always believed that barbarism is behind us. It was before, uh, because we believe in progress. Uh, and science and technology have brought, in fact, progress. Well, uh, Many people in the global south don't buy this narrative because they have been suffering the consequences of this uh, so-called progress. So there has been, of course, progresses in the plural, you know, things that have gotten better and uh, that we have now access, communication, many other things. 
uh, even distribution of health and so on. But there are other things that are getting worse and worse. And I think our problem is we uh, in the global north believe that we have technological solutions for all the problems. But the problems are political problems very often, not technological problems. And therefore, we treat them as something that we can fix. Um, how are we going to fix uh, the ecological crisis? Well, with uh, what we call green capitalism, that is to say, um, you know, making money as we have been making, <clears throat> to have capitalists uh, at least, but now in a kind of an environmental uh, sustainable type of model. Well, how sustainable it is? That's the question that people are asking. And the people today is in the global south and from the global south that we listen the voices that are uh, uh, questioning us uh, in Europe and North America and so on. Are you really a civilization or are you really imploding into a kind of a new barbarism? Uh, examples. Uh, well, uh, for instance, we have this uh, this um, imminent uh, 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 ecological catastrophe. Well, what we are saying, you in the north, is that we have to control our development, our uh, carbon dioxide emissions and so on. But we never say that you are responsible for that. Because over the, the time, you know, all the industrial countries in Europe, particularly from the 19th century onwards, were the responsibles. Uh, up until now, for more than 50% of the carbon dioxide emissions. So are you going to stop this kind of development? If you don't, what are you going to to tell us? Is that, uh, are we getting into a new form of destruction of civilization? So you are doing, you are undoing your civilization. That's what they tell us. A good example is the vaccines. Mm -hmm. So, well, you, you know, you, you, you really have very good technology to develop vaccines. But the vaccines and the world will be safe if the vaccines are available throughout the world at, uh, you know, at free or at a very low price. There are many countries that can produce vaccines, like India, like Brazil, like South Africa, even Uganda. But because of patents, these countries could not produce the efficient vaccines that we had in the North. So the patent rights prevented many people from getting vaccines. And therefore, the mortality rates in the South uh, are much higher because while we in the global North have four or five or sometimes six vaccines, well, most people in Africa have one or even less than one vaccine on average, statistically speaking. So, but if in fact, if we don't get vaccinated, we continue to be infectious, and therefore, tomorrow, our infections can, can go back to you. So the people in the north are not safe if the south is not safe as well. And they are telling us, but if, if it is so, why do you keep the patent rights in this? Uh, are five companies or even less that produce these things? Why don't you really open up the, the patent rights and uh, renounce to them in this emergency? If we don't do that, you are putting your own life in danger in the future. Well, is this civilization or is this barbarism? So it is really uh, the things that are uh, coming against us. That's, well, the, the new forms of barbarism are things that we do 
to solve our problems in such a way that they create even more problems. Uh, I could give you another example. For instance, the dollar is being used more and more, uh, you know, to produce sanctions against uh, embargoes and sanctions against uh, against other countries. Lots of countries are also now victims of sanctions. They call it the weaponization of the dollar. Well, is it good for the North or is bad? Well, what they say is that if we go on doing these things, what we are going to do is to de-dollarize de de the world, like the BRICS, like other Shanghai Cooperation Organization. They are already dealing their business in other uh, currencies other than the dollar. So you in the global north are weakening the possibilities of the dollar for yourself. So what is this? So you are playing against yourself. So the idea of barbarism is that is a kind of an implosion of our ways of doing things because they are not just against the global south, are against us. So they, they make no sense, except they create lots of multi-billionaires. And these people, of course, are very happy. But the rest of the world is getting in more and more dangers. So these are some of the, of the things that people are really questioning, whether they are going to copy this type of civilization, or in fact, of this civilization is coming to an end, is declining, which is a very old argument, you know, uh, you know, Toynbee, for instance, Arnold Toynbee uh, and Oswald Spengler for in, in the 30s and 40s, they were already speaking about the declining of the West, of civilization. I think that the ecological crisis, and particularly after uh, the pandemic, are telling us that probably they were, they were right. Uh, and uh, we are really you know, going down in a kind of new forms of barbarism uh, that um, we can uh, uh, we cannot predict. We never predict the, the, the worst things in the world. We never, particularly social scientists. Uh, I, I usually say that social scientists are very good at predicting the past. We don't predict the future because the, the future is most probably will be chaotic. But barbarism is a form of chaos in a sense. And I see chaos, uh, you know, popping up here and there. We see protests everywhere, not only in the in the global south, not only in Niger or in Mali. You saw, you see it in the United States. You see it in France at this point. We see it everywhere. Uh, so people are really uh, getting very upset with uh, the ways in which we organize society. Should we really? take a, a deep look at our civilization, look into ourselves and see, well, uh, where are we now? Uh, where we go from here? Probably should be a bit more humble. And I ran a project for the European Union some time ago in which I was trying to uh, solve a very interesting problem. Uh, Europe has been teaching, and Europe in the United States, North America, we have been teaching the world for five centuries. But we don't have learning. We have been learning from the, the world. We have been teaching. Well, probably it is time for us to learn from the experiences of other countries, what they say about nature, what they call the mother nature, the mother earth, as they call nature, uh, and listen to them. And probably we see there the seeds 
of uh, a new paradigmatic transition, probably to a better civilization, uh, coming from learning, not uh, not throwing away the European civilization. I never pleaded for that. Uh, I'm not against science. On the contrary, I say that science is a precious, valid knowledge, but it is not the only valid knowledge. There are other valid knowledges in the world. So basically, that's the question I'm trying to I'm trying to address. I, I'm sorry if it took took me a bit more time, <laughs> too more time, too much time to tell it. No, that's great. Thank you. Um, I think the the point of teaching versus learning is really important here, as you've highlighted. Um, but you do talk about in the book that, despite the fact that the pandemic really got all over the world so quickly, it affected everyone. Um, people are uh, increasingly angry all over the place. Nevertheless, lessons to be learnt from this might be harder than learning lessons from previous sort of big things like the Spanish flu in 1919, the Great Depression, World War II. Um, wh why do you think it might be harder to learn lessons in this instance? Well, I think there are too many vested interests uh, that prevent us from learning the lessons. Uh, and this connects me to... Uh, uh, to the, the question of the scenarios, because I really saw in this pandemic, and that's the, the title of the book uh, is already uh, uh, instructive about that, that I say that any crisis uh, is also an opportunity. If the pandemic is a crisis, it should be an opportunity for us to learn um, what we are doing wrong, or could we do better, and, uh, and we have capacities, technological capacities, to do it better, but do we have the politics uh, to do it better? That's my doubt. That's why it's getting harder and harder because politics, as it is organized in our world this today, uh, is really a kind of politics that is solely concerned with the crisis. Because with neoliberalism, uh, the countries are in permanent crisis, particularly fiscal crisis financial crisis, uh, and whenever you have to think about crisis, it is impossible to think in long-term uh, trends. Uh, you are always dealing with emergencies, a health emergency, a tornado, a flood, uh, you know, a, a, a drought. So the governments have to be too concerned with the imminent crisis of today, and therefore they are uh, not concerned, and uh, poli politics is not organized in these days to cover these broader systems and these broader problems that cannot be solved in a four-year period, which is the electoral cycle in most countries. That's why I think that it's harder, because there are too many vested interests, too much money in politics, basically, quite simply. Too much money in politics, so the money that really makes a lot of money with the crisis. I mean, you look at the Amazon.com, for instance, they never made so much money as they did with, uh, with, uh, with the pandemic. So there are sectors of capitalism that make money out of crisis. That's why it is so difficult to, de to deal and to learn from the crisis and to transform them into opportunities. So what then scenarios do you see as being possible ways forward about how the lessons of the pandemic 
could or perhaps may not be learnt? Well, I saw in the, in the book, I, I envisaged uh, three scenarios. Uh, the, the first scenario, which I was, you know, I was writing the book, as I was writing the book, things were evolving. And I was saying around the world, uh, uh, what was happening? And I saw basically three scenarios. Uh, the first scenario were particular governments more to the right of the political spectrum uh, that uh, were initially uh, negating the seriousness of the pandemic. I call that negationism. That is to say, well, the pandemic is not very serious. It's something like, you know, we are going to deal with it. Um, nothing will change after this. But... I saw that this scenario would be very, very troubling. I'll tell you in a moment why. The second one uh, was a, a scenario that I got. I called it Gato Pardism. Gato Pardo is the title of uh, a novel, famous uh, novel from Giuseppe de Lampedusa, an Italian writer, that basically became famous because of, because of the saying that is uh, uh, central to the book uh, that we must make some changes so that nothing changes. That is to say, we have to make some concessions here and there, but, you know, so that our comfortable life goes on as ever. So I call that uh, Gato Pardism. And I took the editorials of the Financial Times as a good example of Gato Pardism, so to say. Um, then I say, well, probably the, the only scenario that is uh, really turning the crisis into an opportunity is the, the third scenario, is the alternative, is to really face the fact that the virus is telling us you have to stop this type of intense exploitation of natural resources because you are exhausting our water, our rivers, our uh, wealth on the ground, and this is turning against you, is destroying nature but he's also destroying the, the basis of human life on the planet. So let's start thinking about other ways of thinking, because the pandemic was telling us lots of things. So that were the three scenarios. Where are we now, Miranda? Uh, where are we now? Well, I think the first scenario has prevailed. Uh, in fact, I think that I don't see much being changed uh, after the pandemic, uh, particularly in the United States. Uh, what, what, where were you th we thinking that things could happen? Basically, uh, neoliberalism has, telling, has been telling us that the markets solve all the problems. The markets are much better than the state. But when the pandemic came, people didn't uh, go to the markets for protection. They went to, to the state, to the hospitals, to the health centers. So they look for protection from the state. And the state was not there in many countries because everything has been privatized. Health has been privatized. Education has been privatized. So I felt that, in fact, that this virus was telling us that we should, uh, you know, give more space, for instance, to the health services, more funds. Uh, health is a public good. It's not a business. Because, in fact, in many countries, the private hospitals refused the patients with COVID. They didn't want COVID next to the hospital, the private hospital. It happened in, in several countries in Europe as well. So I felt that this would be a very disturbing scenario. 
The second scenario, I, I felt that in Europe, in some countries, I saw it in Portugal, in a sense. Uh, I saw it in Spain, uh, in some Nordic countries, that uh, a lot of investment was being uh, uh, now directed to, to health. Uh, at this point, for instance, I can see that there are you know, more investment in health services, in public health services in some countries. And I think this is positive. This corresponds to the second scenario because it is the second scenario. Well, because nothing changes in terms of, um, of the, for instance, the energetic transition. We in Europe all of a sudden forgot about the energetic transition because most of the resources that were going to the, the, trans to, to the energetic transition are going to, to to be used for the the war in Ukraine, uh, and this war, in fact, is being very expensive for Europe for all, lots of reasons. So all of a sudden, we are looking for fuel oil, we are looking for gas, we are looking for carbon. That is to say, the things that we felt <clears throat> that were of the past, and that we should go for the renewable uh, energies and so on. So I think that the, the second scenario is not very strong. And the third is basically absent. Uh, I saw at the grassroots level in many countries, lots of interesting things coming up from the people that are excluded, abandoned by the state, how they protect themselves, how they try to learn from the pandemic. But they were grassroots ex uh, experiences. They never became state policies. So today I may be a bit more skeptical uh, than I was before. Because, for instance, when I, I said, well, look, um, we know that the cities, the large cities, are the worst place to be in a pandemic. When you look at the rates of, the, of mortality rates in uh, Mexico City or in Mumbai or in any other large city of the world, you'll see that large cities are no good for the for people when a pandemic. So we should probably uh, try to rethink our cities. The, think, uh, cities should be resignified, should be redimensioned, so that they wouldn't be such large cities as they are now. And probably we have a, uh, in our Western civilization this idea that uh, the city life is always superior to the countryside life, to the rural life. Well, many people, uh, in order to protect themselves, when the pandemic came, went to their villages. That's my case. I went to my the village of my parents to protect myself. Like Boccaccio in Italy, he went to, he, he left uh, Firenze, Florence, uh, to go to one village in Italy to write the Decameron. His parents stayed in Florence and they died of the past uh, of the time. Of the of the pandemic of the time, uh, so it is this uh, the black death as, as we know it. So it is this idea that this uh, third scenario was opening up our eyes to see other ways of uh, looking uh, at our world. Or why won't we give more incentives for people to live in the countryside? But for that, we have to, have to have good internet connections in most countries, to begin with in the United States, but also here in Europe. If you are in the countryside, the chances are that your internet connection is not so good as the, the connection in the cities. 
Well, how can we have people that are connected by the internet in the countryside, in remote countryside sometimes, without being connected? So all this would, uh, uh, you know, recommend uh, redirections in investments in the countries. And I don't see uh, this uh, uh, being done no, in any country, particularly in the global north. Uh, and in our case, I think, particularly for us here in Europe, uh, because of the, the Ukraine war, in a sense, uh, um, became, uh, uh, you know, really the, the, the major problem uh, and uh, as, as a problem that was uh, at priority. Anything that was, uh, you know, being told us by the pandemic was forgotten all of a sudden. So we are maybe probably uh, running the risk of confronting another crisis, another pandemic very soon, if we go on doing the things that we are doing at this present time. Mm. Obviously, imagining a scenario is not nearly as easy as enacting it. Um, and as the title of your book suggests, right, the future begins now. That's something that you're very aware of, the difficulty in getting from where we are now to something that might be more utopian. Um, and you talk about this in the book. You talk about the transition and the mm -hmm. difficulty there, as you've implied in your answer just now. Um, and you also bring in your sociology of emergences into the mm -hmm. conversation. So can you talk us through what you mean by that and how it might help with this bridge, with this transitional moment? Yeah, well, I try to follow the idea of concrete utopias. It's almost uh, or real utopias, as my friend Eric Olin Wright used to call them. They used to say not... Uh, old modernist uh, type of utopias of large designs but the things that can be done they are being done they are not you know in a sense visible uh, because we we don't value them as uh, as as they should be valued but so wikipedia we can say that wikipedia is a, is a you know, utopia because it's something that is not there for for profit it is benefiting everyone in the world there are some problems there, but, you know, problems that can be solved. So there are some utopias that probably can develop. And I think that the, the ones that I was looking at was that we just have to look anew the experiences of the world to try to come to this conclusion or to this assumption that could lead us that the understanding of the world by far exceeds the Western understanding of the world. So, and I would go from our understanding to other understandings, and if we could learn from other understandings, we could benefit the world as a, as a totality. So I saw that movement from the monocultures, as I call them, to the ecologies. And I identified five monocultures that are the source of our problems. And uh, I identify five ecologies that would be the opportunities for solutions. So which are the, the monocultures? The first monoculture is the monoculture that says that there, are, there is only one valid form of knowledge that is modern science. Um, this is a monoculture. Because we know that there are many other knowledges in the world, bad or, or, or good, but they are there. I mean, their vernacular knowledge, the popular knowledges, the peasant knowledges, the feminist knowledges, the indigenous knowledge, there are lots of knowledges, and we have discarded all these knowledges because they are not scientific. 
So why don't we move from this monoculture of science as the only valid knowledge to an ecology of knowledges? I give you an example. If I want to go to the moon, I need science. But if I want to know the biodiversity of Amazonia rainforest, I need indigenous knowledge because indigenous people living there know the species and all the biodiversity there, not scientists. They are the ones. So we have, for different purposes, we need different knowledges. So we should be more humble because there are many questions that are important in our life for which there is no scientific uh, a solution. For instance, what is happiness? What is the sense of life? Why are we here in this planet? Where are we going from here after death? There are problems. Even young people today ask these questions. But these questions are not scientific questions. Are questions that science cannot answer. Because science can only answer questions that are formulated in scientific terms. I learned that from a great scientist in uh, in, in Germany. Carl von Weizsäcker in the 80s. Look, you know, science cannot tell us anything about the meaning of life. Uh, and therefore, there are other knowledges. So this would be one. The second one is that we make the dichotomies in our world, in our Western world, which are very strict. Uh, nature versus humanity. Black, uh, uh, black person, uh, uh, white person man, woman, and all of these dichotomies are hierarchies. And that's why we have patriarchy. That's why we have racism. That's why you have this destruction of nature, because humans are superior, because we are divine creation in a way that nature is not. That's the Cartesian way of looking at nature. So this way of classifying is very monocultural. Because there are other cultures in which the differences are seen in a different way. Is it possible to see differences? Because men and women are different. Uh, if we take just these two sex for uh, simple reasons in our conversation. But it, it is interesting that become they are different. But not with hierarchies among them, between them. So like uh, humans are different from trees and rivers. But we should be less hierarchical. Consider that humans are superior to rivers. So I think that differences without the hierarchies, they should be the ecologists. The third one is that for us, we are really very intoxicated uh, with the idea, or very addicted at least, with the idea of progress, of linear time. And therefore, we are more advanced than the others. I don't think that the, today this is tenable in many ways for the reasons that we discussed before. I think that uh, there are many ways of looking at the time, not as an arrow, not as a, a kind of a linear time that goes in one single direction, but the time of the peasants, the time of the popular uh, uh, populations around the world in which, for instance, they see time in a cyclical way, like peasants see the time in cyclical ways, not in uh, linear ways. So they have different conceptions of time. And I think that we need that. The fourth one is that for us, we are addicted to consider that there are two scales of things that are most important. Whatever is universal is more important than whatever is particular. Whatever is global 
is more important than whatever is particular or, or local. Well, of course there are differences, but you know, how do we develop the global? For instance, we say that fast food is global. Well, but we know that the McDonald's were created in Midwest in the United States of very poor families and restaurants that didn't have much to make, you know, meat, to eat meat, and they invented the the McDonald's. And all of a sudden, it was a local thing. And this local thing became global. So all global things are local in the origin. So that's why you should be more um, flexible about these things that are local things that are probably better than global things. Let's evaluate them, not because it is global, because, you know, it's nothing in ethics that can tell us in this. And finally, why do we think that capitalist production is uh, more productive than uh, other forms of production? Uh, because the capitalist production calculates the productivity in a cycle of production. For instance, a land, you, you sold, uh, you know, for maize or whatever, and it's just in that cycle, how much are we going to get the turnout of that? from that, uh, from, uh, uh, from that uh, process, it's a single process. While the peasants don't think like that. They think that the, the land may be very productive one, one here, but in order to be productive in the next year, the land, the earth must be, must rest, must have some rest. And that's what my parents told me because they were peasants. So this idea of another conceptions of productivity, because our lives are multi-cycle. You and me, we are sometimes have cycles of our life in which we are much more productive than other cycles of the moments in our life. They cannot, our employers cannot judge our productivity by just one cycle of production, one year of the, the, the business company, because sometimes, or because we are sick or because we are or we have some prob family problems or something, we are less productive. But in the end, in the multi-cycle of our lives, we are, in fact, more productive. So I think that we have this idea of the single-cycle productivity, and this is destroying the land. I see it in the United States. We are already in the fifth generation of herbicides and pesticides to produce corn. So the land is really being poisoned by all these very intense herbicides and pesticides and fertilizers. Well, in the end, uh, you know, the rivers are being contaminated. The habitats of the wild animals are being also destabilized. And they may have new pandemics in the future. So I saw that the emergencies is just look at the experience of the world with different eyes. Look at this diversity and celebrate this diversity instead of saying, now oh, we are more developed than you are, you are primitive, we are developed, we are civilized, and therefore we cannot learn anything from you. So what then do you see as potential first steps towards this transition from the monocultures to the ecologies? Sort of as a final wrap-up question, kind of what could the initial moments or steps be towards a better future i think that we we start we have to start from what is possible for instance if you want an, an energetic transition for countries that depend on fuel fuel uh, fossil energy we cannot change that from one day to the next so we have to change it gradually but intensively 
for instance, the, 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 the energetic transition that we're discussing in Europe or in the global north in general, in the global south as well, in fact. Well, this is the transition. We have to start from there, but to strengthen it. Uh, and what uh, the reason why I'm a bit skeptical now is that this transition is not accelerating, is de-accelerating at this point. And these are, I see as a step that we are taking, but now instead of intensifying it, we are really de-accelerating it. The other thing is that there's a lot of discussion around the world about water, because water, by 2050, the United Nations uh, calculate that 50% of the people in the world we have uh, uh, no access or scarce access to potable water. So this is a time, and there has been lots of initiatives in several countries to nationalize water. That is to say, water as a public good cannot be privatized, cannot be distributed in private, cannot be in private hands. Well, there was a transition going on and discussions in the United Nations, and all of a sudden, this is being abandoned. Uh, you know, many companies like Nestle and the others are buying aquifers. They are aquifers because they really know that the water is going to be scarce. So if you would continue to this idea that uh, water is a public good, then I think that we'd be in a good direction. The same with health. I think that the health system, the public health systems, and now if we go on strengthening them, and we were strengthening them in some countries at least, I saw this uh, idea that uh, we have to be prepared, better prepared for the next pandemic. So let's really fund our national health service. I even saw that in England, in a sense, when Boris Johnson got the COVID, all of a sudden he was saved by the, uh, the national health service and he, he became interested uh, in protecting the, the, the national health service because after all, they saved uh, his life. So I, I think that these uh, were initiatives that we should promote. We should, and they were already on the ground. The other is the discussion of uh, agricultural sovereignty. That is to say, there are essential goods that we should produce locally if possible. Because you know that when a pandemic comes and uh, the chain, the distribution chain breaks down, you may be, you know, in great danger. Look at what happened in the United States. Uh, you're speaking about the, the, the virus coming from China. But where from were the masks? The, the masks were coming from China because the United States, we in Europe didn't produce masks almost anymore. So we have to have sovereignty for strategic goods, agricultural goods, and basic needs. So these, I think, were things that were being discussed already. And now, for some reason, I think, I think basically for uh, the confrontation between, you know, the war in Ukraine and the confrontation between the United States and China uh, is creating all kinds of problems. And we are forgetting Europe was in the uh, front line of some of these initiatives. And now... Europe is subjected to to the United States uh, um, geopolitics, and therefore the United States is no good lead in environmental issues, as we know. So I, I'm a, a bit more skeptical, but I, you know, I'm a tragic optimist. 
Uh, so I always keep thinking that it is possible. And I see that the grassroot, at the grassroots level, I saw, for instance, during the pandemic, how the indigenous people in Latin America reinvented, in a sense, the traditional medicine, because they have a very rich traditional medicine based on herbs. Of course, the herbs don't produce vaccines, but traditional uh, medicine produces immunity that protects you against the virus. Or whenever you are infected, it's not so dangerous for your health. So they even wrote down some of the recipes of traditional medicine in Colombia, in Brazil, in Guatemala. So I saw these initiatives popping up, and I felt that that could be really another sign of the paradigmatic transition. But I I, I tell you, I'm not so sure. I, I If I would write the book today, <laughs> I would probably, my note would probably be the final probably less optimistic because, as I said, I could not anticipate the future and the things that we are going now through. Mm. Fascinating. Thank you for sharing that with us. I think it is such an interesting thing to sort of see how we feel as things develop, um, because as the title of the book suggests, from the pandemic to utopia, right? That's a pretty big goal. Uh, but as the subtitle says, the future begins now. So hopefully listeners, I think, will have a lot to learn from listening to you. Um, and of course, they can read the book if they want to learn more. So thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us on the podcast. You're very welcome, Miranda. So please.